The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here's your top five at five markets, making it four in a row, grinding out more gains. But could the win streak be at risk? Futures, they are down. Breaking news out of Japan. Former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe dead after being assassinated at a campaign event. The very latest on what we know. Elon Musk bid to buy Twitter, apparently once again in jeopardy, talks around funding reportedly taking a dramatic U-turn. A troubling new report revealing just how many hundreds of billions of your taxpayer dollars may have been wasted on the COVID loan program. And because it's always Opportunity Friday here on WEX, your weekly list of the top five insider buys is back with one big stock and big name investor at the top of the list. It is Friday, July 8th. This is Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. Thank you for joining us here on CNBC. I'm Brian Sullivan. We are sorry to say that we have to begin the program with news that former Japan Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is dead after being shot. Abe was giving a campaign speech for Japan's parliamentary elections in the southern part of the country, a city called Nara, when the gunman opened fire. Local media reporting that the suspect is in custody. Before Abe succumbed to his injuries, Japan's defense minister, as well as Abe's younger brother, calling the assassination, quote, an attack on democracy. The nation reportedly in a state of shock. Japan has virtually no private gun ownership and very little violence of any kind. We will have more on this coming up throughout the hour and the day here on CNBC. Shinzo Abe, dead at 67. All right, now to the market. Stocks trying to make it five in a row for gains. That's not looking too promising, at least right now. We are seeing stock futures down a bit. Dow futures off about 114 points. NASDAQ down 48, down about two-tenths. It's early. Things could very well turn around. Markets, though, they did pop again on Thursday. The NASDAQ jumped more than 2%. You had very good breath internally as well. 84, the NASDAQ 100 moving higher. In bonds, the 10-year yield remaining at the 3% threshold right now. Just below that at 2.98%. In oil, so much for sub 100 buck a barrel prices. Oil right now at 102 and change. It rose back above 100 on Thursday. Many market insiders suggesting the recent price drop may have had more to do with hedging on futures contracts than any real drop in demand projections. Remember, as we have shown you, even in most global recessions, oil demand globally does not drop very much. In fact, in 60 years, oil demand has only fallen in a year, 10 of those times. Let's quickly check the crypto market as well. Bitcoin climbing back above 21,000. Right now, we are seeing Bitcoin just above that at 21,400. Ether is mildly lower as well. All right, let's get a check on your global markets of what's happening in Europe and go worldwide. Jumana Brissetti is back, and she is in our London newsroom with a look at the early trade in Europe. Jumana, it's great to see you. 
Great to see you too, Brian. It's great to be back here as well. Though I've got to say it is a somewhat sobering end to the week with the news out of Japan. Uh, and that being said, we're also seeing uh, some of these markets dip into declines as well. You can see a lot of red on the board behind me. This despite the fact that the stock 600 did have a good week uh, for the most part, up about three percentage points for the week as a whole. Today, slipping back into negative territory. A lot of focus on the UK index, FTSE 100, down about four-tenths of a percentage point. So of course, there we had a lot of polit political turmoil in the last 24 hours with news that the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has resigned and is now taking over a caretaker government. So this is the reaction today in UK stocks. CAC 40 in France down about seven-tenths of a percentage point. Germany squarely in focus as well with lots of talk about a potential bailout of Uniper, uh, the largest uh, gas importer of Russian gas in the country. That is a story that our colleague Jeff Cutmore has been covering all week. So a lot of focus on that. But I also want to turn your attention to foreign exchange because we're seeing some wild moves over here, not least in the euro. And you can see right behind me, we're teetering on breaking through par. 101 is where we're at right now, down about half a percentage point. This is the lowest the euro has been in 20 years. This is also the worst week for the euro in the last couple of months, down about two percentage points on the week. Big questions as to what this means for the ECB. Of course, there's a lot of pressure on them to start hiking as per the FOMC as well. Back to you, Brian. All right, Jumana Brissetti in London. Jumana, thank you very much. All right now to some of this morning's top stories stateside, including some major shakeups at retail trader favorite GameStop. Christina Partsinevelos is here with that and more. Christina. Good morning, Brian. So GameStop right now is announcing that it has fired its CFO, Mike Recupero, and is making job cuts across the company as a part of an aggressive turnaround plan. A source telling CNBC Recupero, who joined GameStop about a year ago, was let go because he was, quote, not the right culture fit and was too hands off. The source adds that he was pushed out by GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen. Shares falling right now in the news, down over 5 percent, heading towards 6 percent lower. It's a different story, though, for shares of Levi Strauss rising on better than expected second quarter results. The clothing company says the results benefited, benefited from Americans opting for more relaxed dress codes at work. Levi is also reaffirming its 2022 guidance for net revenue and hiking its quarterly dividend. And we can see embattled crypto lender Celsius is being accused of fraud in a new lawsuit by a former employee. A former investment manager claims the firm used customer deposits to rig the price of its own crypto token and failed to properly hedge risk, resulting in it freezing customer assets. The suit goes on to accuse Celsius of running a Ponzi scheme to benefit itself throughout, quote, gross mismanagement of customer deposits. So we are essentially seeing almost a, a credit crisis in the crypto market uh, with several other firms, too, Brian. But the story continues. Yeah, just truly incredible what has happened there in just a matter of days. So many big players being wiped out or nearly wiped out, just rattling the confidence of all crypto. Christina, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, overall, the macro markets are gearing up for the release of the monthly jobs number. That is out in just a couple of hours, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. Now, ahead of that, two Fed members signaling more sharp rate hikes may be on the way. Governor Christopher Wallace and St. Louis Fed President James Bullard both stressing Thursday the need to get policy into restrictive territory to combat inflation, even if it means slowing growth. That seems obvious. Duo also playing down fears the U.S. economy is headed for recession. Let's bring in now Gina Sanchez, CEO of Chantico Global and a CNBC contributor. And uh, Gina, welcome. Good to have you on again. I don't know if you ever saw the Oliver Stone movie Platoon with Charlie Sheen, but there's a scene or one of Charlie Sheen's uh, sort of troop mates says, wrong, right, you ain't never been right about nothing. 
You know, and that kind of makes me think about the Federal Reserve. I mean, I know we have to listen to what they say, but it just feels like they have whiffed on so many big things for so long. What's your level of faith in the Fed? Um, well, you know, the Fed is very, very, very late to taking away the punch bowl at this party. I mean, this party has pretty much gone into overdrive. Um, and now that they are attempting to do their job, they're doing it in a pretty ham-handed manner. And so, you know, right now I would say that, that the chances that the Fed is right are, are pretty low. You know, there are those that argue that we're probably already in a recession, at least a mild one. Nobody thinks we're going into a very, very steep recession, but I think that there is a meaningful concern um, that this very aggressive rate hiking kind of that's targeted against inflation that's being driven by commodities lately. Um, and that's not a kind of inflation that, that the Fed is usually very effective at controlling. So it sort of is a head scratcher. Yeah, if they can drill more oil wells or produce more steel pipe or find more ships or shipping containers, they might be able to control inflation. I guess they do have a blunt instrument that is putting the economy into a slowdown. Sounds like you just said, Gina, if, if, if we do go into recession, you do not believe it will be that severe or deep of one. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's our current assumption right now is, is, that, um, is that if we do go into a recession or, in fact, if we're there already, it's probably going to be a mild recession. I mean, we were already coming off of the back of a, of a rebound as the as, you know, COVID pandemic started to feel like it was coming to an end, although it turns out it's not over yet. Um, but at least, you know, the the. Um, the closing of the economy is um, we had a big reopening, a big boom in the economy, and that we were already on the back of that already. Um, and so this just really cooled, um, cooled the economy very quickly. And I don't think it was the mm. Fed that did that, Brian. It was oil prices that did that. That's what cooled the economy. Yeah. That's why we talk about it so much pretty much every day, Gina. I guess if that's the case, then the calculus we have to do with regards to stocks is just trying to figure out how much earnings estimates are going to come down or earnings themselves, not just estimates are going to come down and then put the appropriate multiple on that and come up with some kind of a number. Yesterday, Oppenheimer dropped their price target from 53.30, the high on the street in the S&P, to 4,800. I expect more will do the same. Would you expect that? Yeah, we're, we're definitely expecting these to come down because if you assume that companies are going to have to revise down their earnings, and that's the general assumption, certainly ours, um, then you have to assume that we're not as cheap as we look right now. Right now, we look just fairly valued. Um, and, you know, some might say, well, then money should come rolling in. But as soon as you get those earnings revisions, we're going to look expensive again, and the markets are going to have to come back down one more time. So we see another bout um, of repricing um, over either over the summer, late summer or early in the fall, which is usually that really scary time in the markets. Um, and as uh, as uh, you know, it was once said, you know, October is a very scary month, but so is July, November, December, et cetera. Um, but, but we do, we are going into that kind of fall time period when um, we could have a second round of, of repricing um, in the markets in order to deal with where we land in terms of interest rates. Yeah. We'll see what happens. A lot of Fed chatter out there. We'll see if they lose full control of the markets or not. Gina Sanchez, always love having you on. 
Gina, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, we have got a lot more to do on this Friday. And when we come back, Japan, the world in shock. Much more on the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, shot dead at 67 years old. Plus, next steps for the UK following Prime Minister Boris Johnson's resignation. Steve Sedgwick will lay out who may step into that role, when, and why you as an investor should care. And it's Opportunity Friday here on WEX. Your weekly insider buying segment is back with one big-name stock and big-name investor topping the list. We'll roll on right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, breaking news from overseas this morning. Japanese media reporting that former Japan Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is dead after being shot. The 67-year-old Abe was giving a campaign-style speech for Japan's parliamentary elections in the southern part of the nation when a gunman opened fire. Abe was Japan's longest-serving prime minister. Local media reporting that the suspect, a 41-year-old male, is in custody. Before Abe succumbed to his injuries, Japan's defense minister, who is also Abe's younger brother, called the assassination attempt, quote, an attack on democracy. The nation reportedly in a state of shock. Japan has virtually no private gun ownership and very little violence of any kind. Leaders around the world making statements, expressing their condolences. We will have more throughout the hour and day here on CNBC. Shinzo Abe, assassinated at 67 years old. All right, still on deck. We will get more on that story as the details continue to roll in. Plus, the Spirit Airlines takeover saga taking yet another turn and... Yet another pause. We'll tell you about it after this short break. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Uh, Welcome back. The race to replace Boris Johnson as Britain's prime minister following his decision to step down fully underway. This less than 24 hours after Johnson's announcements. Now, several high-profile political leaders there are either throwing their hat in the ring for the job or at least testing the water. Steve Sedgwick with us again from London. All right, Steve, who is stepping up to potentially be the next prime minister of the United Kingdom? Brian, I knew you'd ask me that, and I almost don't want to answer that question just yet. In fact, if you come to me on Monday here in Abingdon, I'll probably have a better clear idea because they are all trying to do it. I came here yesterday evening speaking to a lot of the backbench MPs, a lot of the MPs who finally managed to get rid of Boris Johnson, including one of them who'd put in his resignation letter, a really damning one, uh, yesterday morning, which was another straw on the camel's back. Uh, and while I was on the f- chatting there to one of the MPs, one of their phone went, and, and it was like, oh, my God, I've got to answer this, sorry, because it's one of the candidates who wants to be trying to get me to be one of their backers because each of the candidates to get to the first ballot, which will probably happen on Monday or Tuesday, needs eight MPs to back them. So that's not a big hurdle, but it is a hurdle. So already uh, they were starting to try and canvas support and get their eight names straight away. I can pretty much say, though, everyone who you've heard of in British politics uh, from the Conservative Party, apart from Boris Johnson and his deputy, um, who is Dominic Raab, pretty much will try and stand for it. That's the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Uh, it, it is the current Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadine Zahawi, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, our Treasury Secretary, uh, Rishi Sunak as well, uh, the former Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, the former Health Secretary, uh, Jeremy Hunt. The list is endless, plus a whole host of names that you probably haven't heard of as well. But I can guarantee you one thing. By the end of next week, we will be in the latter stages of finding out who the real runners and riders are in this Kentucky derby that is going to go on. But in the meantime, real contention about whether Boris Johnson should actually have the job until they sort out who his successor is. And that is very contentious here in Westminster today. So what are the betting odds then, Steve? Is Johnson going to stay on, as you noted yesterday, maybe until the fall as a caretaker prime minister or listen to some of his most fierce critics and pretty much make his exit immediately? Well, you'll love this. He wanted to, in part because the, the, the country retreat of UK prime ministers is this beautiful stately pile called Chequers. Our viewers should have a look at it online as well. And he wanted to hold a summer party there as well. So amongst other things, he wanted to manage to get his party at his summer retreat. Well, that's probably not going to happen now as well. But what will definitely happen is this arcane uh, grey man institution called the 1922 Committee, which is basically the executive committee uh, of the Conservative Party within Parliament. They're going to set the rules and they're going to try and really get this process going a really bit quicker yeah. as well. So maybe we don't have to wait uh, till October. Possibly we'll get this done uh, just after the summer recess. They get a really great big Here's holiday here, uh, these uh, parliamentarians. Way better than you and I get at CNBC. So maybe by early September uh, we'll have this sorted out. Well, I'll tell you what, Steve. I wouldn't be taking a holiday right now, even if granted. I'll tell you, you know as well as I do, you cover the energy markets. We've got a potential energy crisis for the U.K. and Europe coming up in winter, trying to refill gas storage. I know there have been reports about the U.K. trying to reopen the rough natural gas field that it closed down five years ago. You do wonder, as much as people may dislike Boris Johnson, if there's a vacuum of power 
Are these critical decisions that need to be made now for the winter, are they going to be able to be made Oh, stop it, Sally. You know that is the key question here as well, because Boris Johnson has turned around and reassured everyone he won't be making major policy announcements uh, while we're waiting for the next successor, who will then obviously make the big announcement as well. Now, that means, as you quite rightly uh, imply there, not just on energy but on the economy, possibly on a whole host of other issues as well, that we're not going to have those big announcements made to to fight the cost of living crisis that Mr Biden's fighting on your side of the pond as well, uh, to to fight uh, concerns about raging inflation across the board, to sort out uh, some of the big economic issues here in the United Kingdom, about tax, about spending and about a whole host of other things as well. So if he's not going to make those decisions because he respects what his successor may or may not want to do, What are we doing? Are we in paralysis here in the UK for the next two or three months? Are we going to see great piles of tumbleweed storming through like some old Western uh, Clint Eastwood movie uh, until we get a decision? Quite possibly. Let's hope not, Steve, because, you know, there are millions there in the UK facing energy poverty. If the winter's cold, no heat, prices up. I mean, let's hope everybody gets their stuff together. And I say stuff with a wink. Steve Sedgwick, thank you very much, my man. Appreciate it. All right, on deck, a very special Friday RBI on a shocking new report about just how many hundreds of billions of your taxpayer dollars for COVID relief may have gone to those who didn't even need or want it. The big numbers ahead. Plus, Warren Buffett making a bigger bet on one big oil and gas stock. That name ahead. And a reminder, if you haven't already, be sure to follow our podcast available on all the major podcasting platforms. Dow Futures down 110. We're back right after this. The major average is looking to keep the win streak going. Futures, though, pointing to a lower open, but can markets turn it around to make it five in a row? Perhaps the most important story in the global economy and markets right now, Europe's growing energy crisis. Prices continue to spike with countries already racing to stock up fuel ahead of winter. And it's always Opportunity Friday here on WEX with your weekly look at the biggest buys by company insiders, including one high-profile investor, making a big-time buy on a big name. It is Friday, July 8th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome or welcome back, and good Friday morning, everybody. Not quite 5.30 on the East Coast here. Let's get a check down on the markets and your money and see how they're shaping up. And we are seeing futures. They are in the red. Major averages have been up four days in a row, one of the longer win streaks that we have had this year. Right now, we'll see if that will turn around. We are seeing fair value on the S&P, at least a little bit in the green Dow futures down 95 points, NASDAQ down a little more, about 70 points. This is coming off a big jump of the NASDAQ on Thursday. In fact, the NASDAQ rising more than 2%. You had very good breath, 84. The NASDAQ 100 did move higher. Long way to go. Futures negative, but starting to turn around just a bit. All right, some good news on this Opportunity Friday, as we like to call it. Even with earnings season and the quiet period approaching, We do have enough insider buying for probably one more week of data for a few weeks, highlighting the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level execs with their own money. The info, as always, comes with our thanks to Verity Data. And as always, we are counting you down five to one. Let's get after it. Here we go. The fifth most insider buying this week, mortgage lender Rocket Company, COJ Farner, may be famous for their commercials buying 398000 worth of RKT. Stock four, Keurig Dr. Pepper. 
a chief supply chain officer buying 466000 worth of that stock. Third most insider buying, Macerich Companies, the president buying 525000 worth of the beaten up real estate company. By the way, his first buy in more than two years. Now to the top two insider buys of the week. Both are over $1 million bucks. Here we go. Stock number two, Next Era Energy. New CEO John Ketchum buying just over $1 million bucks of the renewable power producer. And Verity notes that Ketchum had been a seller of the stock. So this is a big reversal in sentiment on Next Era. But the most insider buys this week, that is John Rogers, the well-known head of Aerial Investments, buying $1.02 million worth of Nike, of course, on the board there. This was his third buy of Nike and his largest on record. So if you want to follow the legendary John Rogers, maybe take a look at Nike. Shares down 30% in a month. So John obviously seeing some value there. There you go. The names this week. Top five insider buys. Rocket Companies, Keurig, Dr. Pepper, Macerich, Nextera Energy, and Nike. A reminder, we do this almost every Friday, except right when earnings hit. You got the blackout periods. It's a segment you will only see here on WEX or live on CNBC Pro. So sign up for CNBC Pro if you have not already. All right, time now for a look at some of this morning's top stories, including Spirit Airlines saying it needs more time yet again to figure out its merger plans, as well as some new doubts about Elon Musk's plan to buy Twitter. Christina is back with those. Christina. There's a lot of doubt in my stories today, but uh, good morning, Brian. Let's start with Spirit Airlines delaying a shareholder vote scheduled for today on its $2.4 billion sale to rival Frontier so it can continue talks with both Frontier and JetBlue. This is the third time the vote has been postponed. Frontier and JetBlue have repeatedly sweetened their bids for Spirit over the past few months as they seek to create the fifth largest U.S. airline. Reports say this latest delay is uh, is to give time for Spirit and JetBlue to finalize the deal. Spirit says it now plans to hold a special shareholder meeting on July 15th. And there may be fresh doubts now over Elon Musk's $44 billion uh, bid to buy Twitter. The Washington Post reports talks have cooled after Musk and his team determined they can't verify Twitter's figures on the number of spam accounts on the platform. In a call with executives yesterday, Twitter says it removes 1 million spam accounts daily. Twitter shares are down almost 25% since Musk struck the deal to take it private back in April. Separately, though, Twitter is laying off 30% of its recruiting team, or less than 100 people, as the company seeks to cut costs. In May, the CEO said Twitter would suspend hiring. And we've got Berkshire Hathaway now owns nearly a 19% stake in Occidental Petroleum. The company disclosing it bought another 12 million shares in the oil producer this week for roughly $700 million. Berkshire also purchased almost 10 million shares last week and is now by far Occidental's largest shareholder. The stock has more than doubled this year, helped by the Berkshire investment and rising oil prices. Ryan, back of you. Yeah, Berkshire buying on a high note. Kind of a rare move for them. Bullish sign. Christina, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, now let's do more on what we consider one of, if not the most important economic stories in the world right now, and that is the growing crisis over energy supplies and energy costs in Europe. Natural gas futures in Europe are trading at about 50 U.S. dollars or more right now with no sign of coming down. Compare that to our costs of about six bucks. All this, the U.K. and Europe rushed to fill up their storage tanks ahead of winter. Let's dive more into this and why it matters so much. 
Per Magnus Niesveen is senior partner and head of analysis at Rystad Energy, and he joins us now. Uh, per Magnus, listen, here in the United States, the word crisis is thrown around way too much. Everything's a crisis. All politicians say everything is a crisis. It comes up every day. I don't use that term then lightly. Is it wrong to call what's happening in continental Europe and UK a crisis? No, we, we thought we, all, we had a crisis last winter on, uh, on the energy crunch in Europe. And then we have the Ukraine war. So it, it's just a, a crisis with, a, with bigger letters than what we saw last winter. Uh, and now that we see gas prices peaking uh, again, um, you know, gas prices are volatile. They go up and down, but we have never seen gas prices like this during the summer. Normally, that's the kind of low season. Uh, now uh, prices are peaking uh, almost as high as the historic peak during the worst winters uh, we have had in Europe. So this uh, is, is a, a crisis, but maybe the crisis is anticipated by the market because the real crisis for, for ordinary people uh, and for politicians will, will come over the winter if we are not mm-hmm. able to fill the gas storage and the gas storage actually gets empty during the winter you can have uh, absolutely a, a crisis, a political crisis. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, people, will be, they don't accept to, uh, to not be able to heat their houses. So uh, the real crisis can come this yes. winter. And then I think all historic crises on, on energy markets uh, will be dwarfed by, by the situation in Europe. So that is what we are afraid yeah. of, and that yeah. is what the markets are anticipating. Yeah, and and heat waves get all the media attention, but actually cold kills far more people globally and in the United States and in Europe than heat does. Heat gets the media attention, Paramagnus, but cold is far more dangerous. Is there a real risk of many people in the UK, continental Europe, simply being unable to afford or unable to get the power to heat their homes this winter? Because... That would be a humanitarian crisis as well. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the swing power generation is gas. Uh, and if there is no gas available, then we have to prepare to have other power sources. It, it can be coal storage. But if we are really running out of gas over the winter for a couple of weeks, then we will run out of power. Uh, and uh, that can have uh, exactly the, the, the consequences you say, that, uh, that the elderly people uh, will, will uh, get actually power interruption over, over days. So that is uh, yeah. what we are afraid of. And that is why the storage has to fill now over the summer. And this uh, heat that we are seeing now in July makes that we are not able to fill the storage as much as we should. I know the world hates Vladimir Putin. It hates what he has done in Ukraine. It hates, it hates the damage and destruction he has borne on the Ukrainian people, and we want to see him punished. But all the data points to continued flows of, of Russian oil paramagnus around the world, just not to Western Europe, maybe to India, and their revenues being about the same as they were before the war. Is there some solution, some elegant way out of this for Western Europe, absent a quick, let's and let's hope, you know, peaceful end to this foolish war in Ukraine? Is there any way out? Could Europe reverse the sanctions in some ways uh, without having some sort of political backlash? 
Yeah, first of all, it's important to understand that the oil market and gas market is quite different. The, the oil can actually be, be uh, shipped to other parts of the world. 50% of all the world's uh, crude oil is being shipped uh, overseas. So Russian oil that used to go to Europe can go to Asia. And that is what is happening now. And actually, the Russian export has been much more resilient than we, than we thought. Uh, Russian exports to Europe used to be 3.5 um, uh, million barrels per day. Now it's down to 2.5. It will surely fall. But Indian imports of, of oil from Russia has increased almost up to 1 million barrel. So yes, this oil is mm. finding other harbors because the Russian oil is discounted now by almost $40 as compared to the Brent. And of course, then refiners uh, that are able to uh, to get the ships uh, uh, and, and they get all the logistics, they can see uh, just the tremendous uh, profits uh, on, on one, uh, one cargo of, uh, of Russian crude oil, $40 uh, cheaper yeah. per barrel. That is uh, a dream for refineries. And they're buying up all they can. I mean, it really is a shame so far that the Western sanctions have not, not done a lot to cut down on Russian money. Per Magnus, Nisfin, we really appreciate your views. Incredible story. We'll stay on it. Per Magnus, thank you very much. All right, coming up, your RBI and a rather shocking new report of the hundreds of billions of your taxpayer dollars spent on COVID aid for potentially millions of people who didn't even need it. Stick around. All right, good Friday morning. It's about 540 on the East Coast. You can see the sun is rising in Washington, D.C. A lovely shot there of the White House, the Washington Monument in the background. Hope you are having a good start to your Friday. What is time now for a special Friday RBI? Because this one is a big deal for all you taxpayers out there. You remember, of course, 2020's huge COVID relief plan called the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. It was meant to give small businesses loans to help them stay in business. The pandemic began to ravage the nation. And it was big, totaling overall nearly $800 billion dollars. More than 11 million small businesses tapped it, and it clearly helped a lot of small businesses stay afloat and pay their employees during a very difficult time. But it may have also had wasted a lot of your money, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars worth. A new report yesterday by the St. Louis Federal Reserve says that the PPP plan was, quote, not targeted well. Also, quote, only about one quarter of PPP funds supported jobs that would have otherwise disappeared. And it gets worse. Study found that even if the jobs saved by the money, the average cost of one of those saved jobs was $169 to $258,000. That's compared to the average pay at a small business job of $58,000. In other words, three to five times as much as the job itself was spent on saving the job. The authors concluded that overall, PPP cost you, the taxpayer, roughly $4 for every $1 in wages and benefits received by workers in those retained or saved jobs. And to top it off, St. Louis Fed also found that most of the benefits did not go to the lower-end workers who needed the money the most, but rather to the owners of the small businesses that received the money. And so many of those businesses were in industries that actually boomed over the past two years, like car dealerships, residential real estate, and fast food. 
And while PPP is referred to as a loan program, hard to call it that, because almost none of the money has been or will ever be repaid. There were 11.5 million loans approved by the government, totaling $793 billion. Of those, $714 billion, or 90%, have been forgiven by the government, meaning they will never be paid back, at least by the people who took them, because it's just going to fall on the national debt and you to pick up the tab. All for, no doubt, many, many businesses that never, never needed the money, but they've taken it anyway. Random, but frustrating. Let's talk more now about this and bring in Jimmy Petakoukas of the American Enterprise Institute, CNBC contributor, Substack author, podcast host, and all-around smart guy. And Jimmy, I want to be clear. There are millions of businesses that needed the money. The program needed to be enacted quickly. It was. It helped a lot of businesses in things like dine-in restaurants and hotels that got destroyed. But I spent hours going through some of the databases that are publicly available last night, Jimmy. I mean, I don't mind if people took it, but shouldn't we press more to pay some of these back from industries that ended up booming? Well, first of all, I mean, as you know, the point was for these not to be loans, but basically to be grants as long as companies uh, you know, basically didn't cut payroll and kept functioning. And they did. So I don't think so I don't think now we should be pressing these companies. Listen, if you want to make some public spirited call, I guess that's fine. But the program worked the way it was supposed to work. Listen, this wasn't purely sort of a, a even though it was called paycheck protection, it wasn't purely a jobs program or a wage support program. From what we know, at the companies that took at the at the you know at the businesses that took this money, employment went up. They were in a stronger financial position. Yeah, and the point was to lay the recovery, lay the foundation for a strong recovery, so we didn't have a a, a very slow recovery, a jobless recovery, and, and and we haven't. And I think to look at how much we spent per job is really misinterpreting the goals of the program. Yes. If I was a small business owner in April or May of 2020, I would have taken the money. I want to be very clear on that. Nobody knew what the hell was going to happen. How would you know the Brian, governments were locking you know down the, the I, I mean, we're sitting here saying, like, they didn't need. How do we know who needed the money back then? I'm not. We don't. And I just admit it. I just said I would have taken the money as well because nobody knew how yeah. long things were going to happen. My point is, Jimmy, $1.4 billion went to car dealers. $1.3 billion went to fast food franchisees. Almost none of them paid it back. Those are the industries that boomed. Residential real estate agents, finally one that didn't take the maximum $20,832. I, I saw thousands of them last night when residential real estate has boomed. I'm not saying you shouldn't have taken the money. I'm just wondering, this money is going to fall on every other taxpayer. According to the St. Louis Fed, the poorest out there never got the money. 72% of the money went to the top 20% of income earners, according to the St. Louis Fed. All I'm saying is, should we press more to pay that back? Well, I mean, again, to be clear, they were not they were supposed to be forgivable loans, so it works. So if what you're saying that if you kept sort of payroll, in the spirit of public but if you're interest, a, if you're a one in the person, spirit of the deficit I, heading in, perhaps heading into a recession, 
if should we should then be bringing money from these companies. I'm not sure that was the time for that. Well, I listen, I agree now is not the time. The only reason we're bringing this up now, Jimmy, is because the St. Louis Fed came out with their study. I know at the time everybody said, well, maybe this won't work, but we have to do something. I get it. But the St. Louis Fed report was so eye-opening to me because it said most of the money flowed to the top. Small business owners shared it with banks and their suppliers. If you average this out, $714 billion lost divided by the number of tax receipts, every American household that files taxes is going to owe about $6,000 because of this. First of all, it's not a St. Louis Fed study. It's them doing a blog post on an external study. And I think the, the way to Fair look enough. at it, I mean, what is, I mean, sort of, what is the counterfactual? Is the is the counterfactual uh, as far as lost revenue and lost jobs if we don't do this program, a program which was put together sort of in the fog of something that never happened before? I, I and I, I think looking at at you know revenue per job again, it's called the paycheck protection, but it's really the business survivability. Yeah. And if the point was to so businesses could survive, so we could have a strong recovery, which we which we were having and would be having until we uh, decide to spend a whole lot more money, which which by that standard, yeah. even I, now that we know the, the final results, it looks pretty good. I, fair enough. I, listen here. I guess why I'm ticked off is you look at the IRS program. They t- allowed people to take out money for their 401k. But it had to be repaid back over three years. That's people's own money being taken out. But then it had to be repaid over three years. So you've got the giant tax bill. Here we have this plan. Later, we now know that everybody boomed in car dealers and whatever. And the money's just it's just gone. I, I guess it's good for the all the brand new $80,000 pickups that are being driven around. Jimmy P, this discussion, my friend, is not over. I promise. We're gonna, we got to go, but we're going to bring you back. Appreciate it. All right, on deck, the monthly jobs number rolling out in just over three hours. Will it change the Fed's thinking at all? ProShare Simeon Hyman will lay out what to watch and where he's finding opportunity right now. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Wall Street gearing up to cap off the week with the big monthly jobs number out this morning. It's due at 8.30 a.m. Eastern, gains about 272,000 jobs expected as those numbers cross, New York Fed President John Williams will be speaking at an event in Puerto Rico. And Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic will be speaking exclusively to us here on CNBC shortly after that number's release, 8.45 a.m. Eastern. And at 10 a.m., we'll get the mail, May Wholesale Inventories Report, he said. I'm sure that, that'll stop you in your tracks. All right, now to help us cap off our week and your trading day ahead bring in now Simeon Hyman, Global Investment Strategist, ProShares Advisors. Uh, Simeon, great to have you on the program. I mean, uh, what are what are you watching most closely right now? I think what we've seen is the, the old adage that the cure for high prices is high prices. We'll probably see a little bit of a weaker jobs number today, but inflation expectations have actually been coming down steadily for months. You know, the headline is that oil is pulled back. But if you look at those break evens, they've been coming down since April. And in fact, the 10 year break even is getting close to 2%. And even the two year break evens pulled back. So that's kind of the good news. The bad news is, of course, that that's some indicia of increasing concerns of economic weakness. Do you feel like the stock market is closing in? 
on some kind of a bottom? Maybe not this is the bottom, but getting close? Well, the question, the question is what's priced in. So, you know, here's one way to think about it. We have some pretty decent fundamentals, things like ROE, sky high, things like leverage, crazy low. I mean, net debt to EBITDA is below one. So the fundamentals are pretty good. And we're trading at 17 times for 2022 consensus estimates. That should probably be 20. So turn that on its head says to me that the market's priced for something like maybe a 10 or 15 percent miss of those expectations. That's one way to quantify what's priced in. Is it enough? I think you'd say that equities are priced for challenges, but certainly not catastrophe. Yeah. And listen, I like to be sunny side up Sullivan, Simeon. Nobody wants to hear doom and gloom at this hour. I get it. But you had the former prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, was assassinated. Boris Johnson stepping down. Germany is already starting to ration gas, dim lights, closed swimming pools. And it's and it's summer. You just wonder what the winter will bring globally and whether it's worth it to take a at least near term risk on equities. Well, certainly our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Japan. And that was just shocking news that we all woke up to this morning. Uh, and, you know, of course, the departure of uh, of Johnson. But n- neither of those things are likely to change any policy directions. Brexit's still going to happen. Japan's still going to likely have easy money. Uh, but there are, of course, some substantial upside opportunities, too. Let's pray for an end in the war in Ukraine and, of course, the reopening or tentative reopening of the Chinese economy that could resolve at least some supply chain issues are things that reside on the other side of the ledger. So absolutely, there are risks of weakness in the global economy. Some of that is is reflected in stocks, maybe not the worst of possible outcomes, but a decent range of them are priced in. Yeah, so you feel like we're priced into challenges, as you say. So would a, would a 15, 16 times multiple on, on 200, 205 bucks earnings for the, for the S&P, does that seem like a reasonable number to you, Simeon? If we make those consensus numbers, I think that there's upside in the market for sure. But we did see in Q1 some indication of things that people are worried about. One of the biggest things that folks are concerned about is margin compression. And in the first quarter, the S&P 500 tallied up 13% top-line growth, but only 7.5% bottom-line growth. That's what people are worried about, because in an inflationary environment, can you pass all those costs along? You know, among the things we know, look for companies that can actually sustain those margins. As an example, the S&P 500 dividend aristocrats, those are those consistent, consistent dividend growers, they took that same level of 13% earnings growth and turned that into, excuse me, sales growth and turned that into 20% earnings growth. So that's an opportunity. And we'd also point to credit, you know, with leverage so low and spreads have actually widened substantially this year. If you look historically, if you plotted one times net debt to EBITDA on investment grade credit, you'd get about 100 bips of spread and we're at 170. And remember, fixed coupon bonds are like a fixed coupon mortgage. So a little bit of inflation, even if it doesn't always make it to the bottom line, still makes it a little easier to pay off those debts that are higher in the the, uh, income statement. Well said. ProShare Simeon Hyman wrapping it up for us here on Worldwide Exchange on a Friday. Simeon, thank you. Have a good day and a good weekend. 
All right, folks, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Once again, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe assassinated, killed by gunmen at age 67. Squawk and the gang will pick up the coverage of that and more. We will see you on Worldwide Exchange, same time on Monday morning. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.